Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, February 17th, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is uh, The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. He's also the new writer of a play called God Shows Up, which is now running at the Playroom on West 46th and is playing through February 21st, so only a few days left. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Selected, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at foulspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning to you two. So uh, I've almost got my voice back. So uh, <laughs> thank you for all the kind words from all the listeners out there. Uh, the show must go on, even if I have no voice. But uh, it's pretty James, much... when you're young, you recover fast. <laughs> it took me two weeks to recover. Oh, so, <laughs> so all right. First up, um, Peter, you got over to the Atlantic Theater Company to see Eddie and Dave. Tell us about this show. Well, uh, frankly, I've been awfully busy with my play, so I wasn't able to get to this show until uh, the closing weekend. And I'm sorry that I'm going to give um, such a rave to a show that uh, is closed, but this is in the Atlantic Second Space on 16th Street, and I am hoping upon hope that they will continue with it or that somebody will pick it up because I thought it was terrific beyond belief. And here's the thing. It's about the rock world, about which I know nothing. It's specifically about Van Halen, which I don't know from the Vanderbilt Mansion. And yet... I am telling you that I was galvanized from the beginning right till the end. Now, some of this has to do with the fact that um, it's a show business story and it has so many elements of every show business story. That doesn't mean to make it sound uh, trite, but the fact that there are truths in it, the rise and fall and people not getting along and breaking up and coming back together and all that. Um, it's a variation on dream girls, which I'm sure is a variation on many show business stories going back way back when. So, uh, here we have um, the um, Van Halen brothers, um, and uh, they're okay. They're doing all right, you know, but um, Dave thinks that he can save the group, and uh, David Lee Roth s- convinces them that he, he'd be surprisingly good for them, and indeed he is, and he makes the group a star. But, of course, uh, when you're dealing with three people, you know, any triumvirate is a problem and three people have a hard time getting along. And we actually have a two against one situation here because they're brothers. But what happens when the brothers are not as prescient, not as smart, not as um, aware of what needs to be done as the outsider who really makes it all happen? So there's a lot of drama here. And what there also is is a phenomenal problem. performance by Megan Hill as Dave. Now, frankly, I have never seen David Lee Roth in any way, shape, or form, at least nothing I know of. I might have passed him on the street a million times and not recognized him. But uh, <laughs> I have been told by people in the know that Megan Hill is, really has the personality of David Lee Roth, which is wild and crazy guy uh, to the nth degree. And um, you might say, well, wait a minute, Megan's a woman, isn't she? We loved her so much in Hand of God. Yes, she is. And in fact, uh, the Van Halen brothers are also played by uh, women as well. Amy Stotts plays Eddie Van Halen and Adina Verzen plays Al Van Halen. And um, Amy must have written this for herself because there she is um, playing the part that she wrote. She is the playwright and she's done a spectacular job. Uh, And uh, what's really nice about it is that sometimes when people write things for themselves, you know, they're not so good in the part. You you think, oh, you know, if somebody else had been in that part, it would be really great. No, she knows what she's doing. She mentions in her Playbill bio that uh, you can easily guess who um, Amy's favorite group is. Yes, we can. Um, And you can tell she's really read chapter and verse and followed this group and knows it inside out. There's also a narrator. And um, that's played by Vanessa Espelaga, who we first came to know in Andrew in the Tropics. And she's an MTV um, VJ. And um, it really talks about the fact that uh, the Van Halens were really getting going when indeed uh, MTV was getting going. And so we have a bit of a rise and fall there. We find out what happens to uh, 
Van Halen's biggest booster on MTV. So, <laughs> 90 minutes, no intermission, phenomenal. Um, wonderful performances. Um, I, I hope that Megan Hill gets recognized at awards times by um, the Lucille Hotels and the Drama Desks um, because um, <laughs> a wild and crazy performance indeed. So um, I hope it moves because I want to see it again. So it is uh, in the Second Space Atlantic Theater Company. It, it ends today, but... Uh, oh, it's still running? I thought, oh, I didn't know that. The 17th is, so oh, it's, uh, you know, by the time okay. pe- folks listen to this, yeah. uh, it, it's going to be uh, probably closed unless they're very quick at, uh, although it is the first review of the morning, so somebody might stop their listening and run out to the Atlantic Could Theater give- Company. Could give new meaning to the phrase, get your tickets now. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, exactly. So, uh, yeah, and uh, uh, the word of mouth has been very, very good on this, and unfortunately I, ne- I didn't get down to see it, and they invited me a few times. But um, hopefully we'll see it again. It sounds very interesting. So. All right, next up, uh, Michael, you got down to NYU to see uh, – a production of Rags, which was also getting a lot of great word of mouth. Tell us about this. Yes, I've been seeing a lot of revisals lately. And, uh, you know, it's funny how things go in cycles and come in packs. Uh, But this was uh, not the first production of Rags I've ever seen. I saw a workshop production some years ago. um, And at that time, I believe they had already started to rework the show. Uh, This was a show that was on Broadway in 1986 and was not a hit. Um, Had a very brief run uh, and a troubled production. Uh, uh, Music by Charles Strauss, lyrics by Stephen Schwartz. Uh, The revised book is by David Thompson, and and he's been working on that for a while now. Uh, The original book by Joseph Stein, most famous for Fiddler on the Roof um, and several other shows. But this is a story of immigrants uh, to New York in the early 1900s. And it uh, many people view it as a sort of an unofficial sequel to Fiddler on the Roof. It's what might happen to some of those people when they arrived in New in. America and in New York. And uh, I guess that connection is even stronger because of the Joseph Stein connection since he wrote both shows, the books to both shows. Um, This is, I I think you would classify it as a cult musical. Many people swear by it. uh, The general opinion, I I suppose, is that the score is really quite wonderful. The Charles Strauss, Stephen Schwartz score. And it's, uh, it's of historical interest because of the collaboration of those two. Uh, you know, I, I've always thought it's great how Stephen Schwartz, who obviously <laughs> uh, is more than capable of writing his own great music, um, has on many occasions, several occasions, worked with composers, uh, other composers, and written only the lyrics. And uh, I, I just think that's really great. Whereas Stephen Sondheim, of course, basically stopped doing that very early in his career. Um, uh, so I don't know, uh, I, I guess it's just a different point of view, uh, that, uh, why Schwartz had no problem continuing doing that, whereas Sondheim did not, but w- whatever, it's fascinating and it's given us some really interesting partnerships. Um, so this is, uh, as I say, the previous production I saw was a, a workshop production. Uh, this I, I, I would classify as the first full production, really, really well done, uh, by the uh, NYU Steinhardt school at the low theater on West fourth street. Um, And uh, one of the most fascinating things about this production is that uh, the climactic moment of the musical is the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, which is one of the most horrific tragedies in New York City history uh, in which there was great, great loss of life uh, because basically um, all all of these immigrant uh, young women workers were locked into uh, this factory in horrendous conditions. And so when a fire broke out, they were uh, most of them were unable to escape. And I believe um, something like 150 young women died uh, because they couldn't get out. Uh, And that 
building, although the, the, the damage to it was obviously great, uh, still stands one block from the Low Theater. So that's, uh, I mean, if that's not resonance, uh, I don't, I don't know what is. Uh, it's, it's just an incredible facet of New York City history, and uh, I'm glad that NYU finally did it. I actually had suggested this show for them several years ago, but for whatever reason, they they haven't gotten it to it till now. Uh, but you know, better late than never, and it's and I guess the quality of the production is is the main thing. This production was directed by Gabriel Barry, uh, with a, a musical direction by Joseph Church, uh, and the central role of Rebecca Hershkowitz uh, was split. Um, I saw a, a young woman named Natalie Young who was just really phenomenal, and and the whole the whole cast, a, a mixture of undergraduates and some graduate students also. Uh, David Herskowitz, the the young the boy, was played by Graydon Yasowitz, uh, Bella Cohen, Noel Linewall, and let's see, Avram Cohen, Tristan Lesso. A uh, uh, large cast. I uh, wanted to at least give the standouts. Max Bronfman was Joshua Coates, Sal Russo, Patrick Clark, uh, Rachel Brodsky, Kristen Fitzgerald. It uh, it it's it was really wonderful to see the show in such a in such an excellent production and uh, featuring. I, I must say uh, this was really something there is a, a, a new initiative or newish initiative called the NYU Broadway Orchestra Ted Sperling music director um, and what this is uh, the, the blurb says the NYU Broadway Orchestra offers an unparalleled experience for the next generation of Broadway musicians providing them with guidance and mentorship as they work with legendary Broadway music directors conductors and performers allowing them to study learn and flourish in the world of Broadway. The NYU Broadway Orchestra will next perform in concert at the Frederick Lowe Theater on Wednesday, April 10th, 2019 at 8 p.m. So write that date down if you want. Anyway, they they were the orchestra for this production. It was about uh, 13 or 14, I believe, and they sounded just amazing. So that is a, a really fabulous initiative that, that Ted Sperling, uh, who we know very well for his work on Broadway, is behind. And so bravo to NYU for that, because I, 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 it absolutely sounded like a completely 100% professional Broadway orchestra, even though it was students. Um, this I'm, I'm very glad I saw this. I, I think the show. Uh, I do not know the original well enough to really comment on the uh, revisions by David Thompson. My my overall impression is that there are many moments of the show that are are uh, re- really very effective, but that it doesn't. Um, there's still a, a sort of clunkiness to it. It has an episodic feel to it. Uh, I I kind of feel like it goes from one scene to another without somehow having a, a, a smooth through line. And I think that was a bit of an issue. I also think some moments were not given full weight um, in the in the script. And also, I think that the the switch between hilarious comedy and, and very serious, heartbreaking drama that we get in Fiddler is not as well achieved in this show. But I have to say, I think it's like maybe 80% there now. And I almost wish that, that they would keep working on it. I also think maybe that, um, you know, uh, the better the direction is, uh, that, that might ameliorate some of those issues that I'm talking about. This was well, this was well directed, but I did feel that jerkiness that I mentioned. So, um, so I'm glad I saw it because the productions of rags are not that common. Uh, who knows when or if we will see it again. Uh, I'm glad NYU did it on that historic site. And uh, I, I'm just really privileged to have been there. Well, um, a few things that I'd like to um, mention is that um, the big question always is what comes first, the music and the lyrics. And mm. if the lyrics came first, I would love to hear the melodies that Stephen Schwartz had in his head <laughs> because composers, uh, lyricists do that. They have their own melodies. And then when they hear the composer's melodies, they say, now I know I am a lyricist. But in this case, of course, it would be most interesting to hear what Stephen Schwartz came mm-hmm. up with his melodies. Uh, another thing, though, um, I think I saw this version of Goodspeed. I don't know if it's been worked on since then. But the husband's gone, right? Nathan, um, her husband, that's no longer right. a character. 
And that version you saw was just a few months ago, wasn't it? Or like last year? Last year, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah well, I, uh, 17, actually. But anyway, time goes fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am uh, I think it's that same version. Yes. And, uh, and as, as much as I care for rags, and I've, I've certainly given it good reviews over the years, and one of my reviews started with, honor thy grandfather and thy grandmother, <laughs> because indeed uh, we are very grateful to those people who made the trip over here and made our lives so much easier. Uh, they don't know how lucky we have turned out to be. Uh, we have surpassed so many of their expectations. But anyway, the idea of a husband coming over earlier and, and then the wife coming over later, and he's outgrown her as he perceives it, and he wants very little to do with her because she's an embarrassment because she doesn't speak English, et cetera, et cetera. And here he is moving up in the world. So it's very easy to discard her. And also she winds up having an admirer, and but she's married. So I think that's a very good complication. I'm surprised that that was dropped. As for Ted Sperling, ironically enough, I was invited to go to a rehearsal uh, of uh, Dreamgirls, uh, an orchestra rehearsal, just orchestra, that's all. Um, I shouldn't say rehearsal it was really a classroom exercise, but nevertheless, it was so f- terrific to be there and see him work with students and tell them about the history of Dreamgirls and all that. And also involved was John Miller. Uh, Some of us who've lived a long time saw John Miller actually is an actor in um, I Love My Wife, because remember, they had on stage musicians and he was one of them. But he's mostly made his living as a musical contractor and musical director, supervisor on the staff, contractor, all that stuff. And uh, he was there to give his insights as well. So, yes, uh, I can tell you that the uh, NYU Orchestra is doing well, even when they're not officially performing. They're terrific. I agree with you, Michael. And his actually John Miller's billing for the NYU Broadway Orchestra is artistic advisor, uh-huh. and then uh-huh. uh, and then Ted is the music director. So I mean they have really top notch people here. You bet, you bet. Uh, you know NYU's got the fortunate um, <laughs> location, location, location sure. Sure. of sure. of people who you know. Sure, I'll go down and uh, do a few weeks of work on this That's thing right. that are. Otherwise, would be engaged in uh, in first class productions on Broadway or around the world. So, right, right. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so that was Regs at NYU, uh, the Steinhardt Music Theater class at the Frederick Lowe Theater, and unfortunately, I think February 11th was its last date. Yes. All right. So both Peter and Michael got up to uh, York uh, to, for the musicals and Mufti series to see The Day Before Spring. So, Peter, why don't you get us started on The Day Before Spring? The Day Before Spring was an early Learner and Low musical, their second, in fact, and uh, it's an original musical, and it deals with uh, a pretty fascinating situation class reunion. Now, um, some people are very into class reunions. I am. I'm always the first one there and the last one to leave. <clears throat> some people hate class reunions. I'm not, I didn't <laughs> like those people then. I'm not going to like them now, which, by the way, has <laughs> not been my experience because we're all in this together feeling comes at, at, at the reunions I've seen. People who um, are ready to beat me up uh, and uh, tear off my pants and throw them on a passing bus and now buddy-buddy with me. So uh, now that we're all adults, um, it, um, it it's certainly makes a big difference. So, But anyway, this is a class reunion that's coming up. It's the 10th um, reunion of a college class. And the play makes an interesting point about how <laughs> when you go back to a class reunion, you, you sort of become younger people, the younger people you were too. I know that contradicts with what I just said, but what I mean is the fellowship, you know, and, and, and doing silly, stupid things that you did when you were in school seems to happen. You get, you drink a little too much, you start singing songs, you get sentimental, um, all that kind of business goes on. But the real conflict here has to do with the fact that um, we're dealing with Catherine. And Catherine um, and her husband, Peter, have been married 10 years, and they met under very strange circumstances. Um, He uh, rather rescued her when she was stuck on the road um, with uh, a guy, and um, he took her away, and uh, they fell in love very quickly and got married. Well, the bigger complication is the guy that she was riding with when the car got stuck was the person she was engaged to. She fully expected to marry Alex, but she didn't. Okay, it's 10 years later. Alex has written a book called The Day Before Spring. It's doing very well. Uh, And she can't help but read it because, after all, uh, she may very well be in it. Well, she certainly is. 
especially on page 99. Well, anyway, the point is she doesn't want to go back to the reunion because Alex is going to be there. On the other hand, she wants to go back to the reunion because Alex is going to be there. And that's the dichotomy. Um, when she sees Alex, um, she leads him on and then she stops him and then she doesn't want to lead him on and so on and so forth. And it really does indicate the feelings you have, you know, about uh, did the wrong one um, is wrong one the one you married is the right one that got away. Are you really lucky that you didn't marry this original person? You're better off with the other person. So, you know, this is 25 years before company. Um, 45 to 70. And uh, I remember that Boston audience being so furious at company. And I bet audiences were pretty furious with uh, the day before spring too, because it really does question the values of marriage. And what's really smart, Ellen J. Lerner has a scene before it starts, before they go to the reunion, where um, you see their marriage, their day-by-day marriage, the complaints, the, the, the boredom, so on and so forth. So it really does indicate that they're ripe for a new experience. I mean, after all, 10 years is three years beyond the seven-year itch, isn't it? So, so it's a very compelling story, and um, the music is quite lovely. It didn't get a cast album, I'm sorry to say. What it did get, ironically enough, was a movie sale. The movie was never made. And uh, again, it must have been hot stuff in the 40s where people really were much more into marriage. It was expected. You did it. You lived through it. Uh, Divorce was out of the question for many people, sometimes because of religion, sometimes because of um, what friends and relatives would think. That's still true, of course, but not nearly as much as it was back then. So um, those are real problems. And um, under those circumstances, it does make for a, a, a pretty compelling drama. Um, it, it wasn't, um, as <laughs> terrific a production as many Muftis can be. I will say it was good. It's good. Yeah. Good. Um, and I do think that, um, in, in the long run, the problem with, um, having Catherine played by Madison Claire Parks is, um, she just didn't have enough oomph. Um, so, um, she was a tiny weak link. Um, Jesse Manicharian was very, very good though. I thought as Alex and, uh, certainly Will Reynolds, who reminded me of a young Barry Nelson, if that means anything to you, if not see the movie, Mary Mary for him. For him, he's very good in it. Uh, he played the husband, Peter Talbot, and I thought uh, he had the perfect 40s looks. It amazed me. Um, those of us who know musical theater very well will um, see that um, two pieces of music were recycled by Lerner and Lowe much later on. Um, one uh, became the song The Contract in the stage version of Gigi, though you will hear that as incidental music in the film of Gigi. And then the verse of Gigi itself, she's a girl, she's just a girl, that thing, actually comes from the day before spring in a song called Where's My Wife, which Peter sings. So um, th- this was not the first time that um, Mufti did. Um, the day before spring. They did it 13 years ago, but it certainly is well worth revisiting. But again, if you put yourself in the 40s mentality, my, my, what it must have been. Okay, Michael, what did you think? Yeah, another one of the leads I wanted to mention was Nicholas Dromard as Bill, uh, who I saw in several uh, musicals tonight shows. And it was great to see him again because there's no more musicals tonight. But (laughs) – I thought, yes, I thought this cast was very strong. I I did feel that just in terms of audibility, Mm. uh, uh, Madison Claire Parks Mm. uh, was lacking in her lower register. Uh, Is that what you meant, Peter? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She has a beautiful soprano voice. Uh, It just seemed like when she was singing low down, uh, lower down, that it didn't quite have the – the projection, but I will have to say um, that I think a little bit of that was uh, that the direction by Mark Aceto, uh, he directed and adapted this because again it's another revisal, uh, and we know Mark primarily from Allegiance, uh, the Broadway musical Allegiance. He wrote the book for that. Um, he uh, adapted and directed this show, and there was a lot of singing uh, upstage and also to the side, uh, which is something that you have to be really careful about in a theater like that, where people are going to be singing with no amplification whatsoever. So I don't know, maybe if he had a little more uh, experience as a director, he would have done less of that. I'm, I'm a little surprised that someone else didn't point this out to him. Um, and of course, you know, it, it looks, you know, I mean, it can look unnatural when people are just standing there singing to the front. So I understand that. 
but there are ways to cheat out and et cetera. And I think they could have done more than that. Uh, I, um, I think, I guess I disagree uh, with Peter uh, in terms of the, this, this show's perspective on marriage, because I think it's um, a very frivolous and sour view that certainly reflects Alan J. Lerner's incredible failure uh, at marriage. Was it eight marriages? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's marriage is treated here as something just c- kind of not to be treated very seriously at all. And I, I uh, again, I do not know the original book, so I don't know what happens in at the end in the original. Uh, but maybe Peter knows, and maybe he can answer this question about I'm about to ask because what happens here is I swear to God. Uh, the the woman in question, uh, Catherine, has decided to go off with the with her old flame and and leave her husband, uh, and she is just about to do that. Um, then another character comes on and and gives uh gives her a talk that lasts about a minute, and then it, within five minutes she decides, no, I'm not going to leave my husband. I'm going to stay with him, and I thought, are you kidding me? Uh, I, I I kind of hated her in that moment for just waffling so easily back and forth. And I'm wondering if that was so incredibly badly written in the original script. I don't know uh, at all uh, because this is a very elusive show. But <laughs> I have no problem believing that uh, she would go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And um, where she stops, nobody knows. Really, it, it, it makes perfect sense to me that people have these torn feelings and um, and are torn apart by them. So uh, I have to say it rang true to me. Um, and I think sometimes you just need a, a pivotal character to come in and say one thing that makes you say, that's it. I'm doing that. Um, I remember uh, at a Drama Desk Awards, <laughs> my girlfriend, who's uh, an inveterate matchmaker, said to uh, the guy she was sitting next to, um, gee, you single? Uh, you know, I have a nice girl that I think you'd like. And he said, yes, yes, I am. And what had happened, we later learned, is that he broke up with the girl the night he was going with the <laughs> night before. So really, he was raring to go. And eventually, he broke up with the new girl because he went back to the old girl very quickly. I mean, really, it's a mess. You know, all these things are very complicated. And I believe any story where people uh, waffle back and forth and um, have no idea what they're doing ultimately. Um, do, uh, um, let me clarify. I absolutely agree with that. I, okay. I just thought the way that it was portrayed here, where literally Literally, she is on her way to leaving yes, her she husband, is. Yes, she and is. then this person comes in and talks to her for one minute, and she says, "You know, you're right. I'm going to stay with my husband." I thought that that just was insulting and and to the audience's intelligence, and made her again look like a very hateful immature, frivolous character that I really did not want to, you know, I was sorry for having spent an hour and a half with her. And and yet there are people who would argue that she's doing the right thing by going back to her husband, who she did promise to um, love for Richard and Poor until this, till death do they part. Oh, it's not, it's not the decision. It's the, it's the changing the mind about who you're going to live with and whether or not you're going to have a divorce in five minutes. Uh, I buy it. What can I tell you? All right. (laughs) I don't. I do not. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) And that's why we get together on Sunday mornings. Exactly. (laughs) All right. So that is uh, the day before spring. It's at the Musicals at Mufti. It is also uh, last performance this afternoon. Oh, and we should mention that, I'm sorry, that Madison Claire Parks is the granddaughter of Larry Parks and Betty Garrett. Really? Uh, so, yes. Did you not know that? No. Yeah. So two kind of major figures in show business history uh, and the progeny, um, at, le- at least uh, for, for one more day, <laughs> is uh, on view at the stage at the York. All right. Um, but more important at um, at the York Theatre Company, coming up on Saturday, March 2nd at 5 p.m., we have a very special uh, discussion led by Peter Felicia and Josh Ellis in Philly, Boston, or, or Baltimore. So, <laughs> Peter, tell us about this. What quick Josh Ellis, 
<laughs> it was Josh Ellis's idea, and I thought it was a great one. And I'm very glad that uh, he's really made it happen. He's the one who approached Jim Morgan and said, listen, I have a good idea. Um, Peter grew up in Boston, saw a lot of tryouts during the 60s and 70s. I grew up in Philadelphia. I saw a lot of tryouts in, um, in that town during the 60s and 70s as well. So uh, why don't we go on a nostalgia trip and talk about what we saw, uh, what was added out of town, what was dropped out of town, who came and went out of town, be it as a performer or a director, choreographer, what have you. But we do have a lot of stories. Um, <laughs> I met Josh in, in 1987 at a, a, a party at the Copacabana where there was so much food that was so inviting looking and neither one of us had a bite of it because we were so excited to talk about these tryouts way back when. And we've been dear, dear friends for more than 30 years, almost a third of a century, I'm happy to say. And um, since we've told these stories to each other incessantly, it was time <laughs> to really share them with people who might be interested in the time when shows used to go out of town, which they rarely do now. And uh, so we're going to talk about uh, such uh, famous ones as MAME, which we both saw in uh, Boston in Philadelphia. Uh, he saw it first. I saw it second. Um, we're going to talk about um, what we saw as Holly Lightly that became Breakfast at Tiffany's, one of the most major flops of all time. Um, and of course, there were ones that came to Philadelphia like Cool Off. Um, yeah, you're pardoned if you've never heard of that one. Uh, and only played Philadelphia and closed very quickly um, in the first week that it played there. It, uh, and it really had a, interesting people, including Stanley Holloway. Or Winner Take All, which I saw, which lasted four performances in Boston and called it a life. Uh, Patricia Morrison and Janet Blair were in that. And it was a Victoria Woodhull musical. I never miss a Victoria Woodhull musical. Um, so anyway, <laughs> um, you know, we, we have all these experiences and all these stories. Um, uh, I, I certainly have uh, ones about Bajor. I certainly have ones about the first one I ever saw, which was I Can Get a Fee Wholesale, where I came out raving about Barbara Streisand. So, um, and <laughs> this is in conjunction with their production, uh, the Mufti production of Lolita My Love, because Josh saw that in Philadelphia, where it closed in Philadelphia. It closed. It's over. And Alan J. Lerner, a few days later, said, wait, wait, wait. I have no idea. I bet I can save it. And so they came to Boston where they closed. It's the only show I know that closed out of town twice. Um, <laughs> but uh, so he has his memories. I have mine. I saw a slightly different show. And so this is what we're going to talk about on March 2nd. And here's the way it works. Yeah, you can buy a ticket uh, just to see that. But if you go to Lolita, either in the afternoon or evening performance, either one, um, you can either stay around after the evening performance or come early to uh, – I'm sorry – stay after the afternoon performance and hear us at five o'clock or you can come at five o'clock and stick around and see the evening performance of Lolita My Love but anyway we certainly um, will echo with the king in um, Once Upon a Mattress says and I have a lot to say but neither one of us saw Once Upon a Mattress when it was trying out oh well you can't see them all I think the concept is and the title are great. I, I was wondering, uh, not to be too literal, did you ever think of maybe finding someone who had seen one of those shows in Baltimore? Uh, uh, they, they probably, uh, I mean, have you determined if any of those shows played in all three cities? Uh, I don't. Nothing comes to mind, but I will say this. I was married to a woman from Baltimore, and so as a result, I saw a lot of tryouts there. I saw applause there. I saw No No Nanette there. I saw Canterbury Tales there. Um, so um, I have done my time in Baltimore, and the thing is that Philadelphia isn't that far from Baltimore. Right. Um, and as a result, Josh used to go to Baltimore from time to time to see shows there too. So we do have Baltimore covered. Oh, The Wiz oh, in good. Baltimore. Oh, will that be a story? The Wiz in Baltimore. Oh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so that's for March 2nd. <laughs> All right. So uh, there's a link to that in the show notes if uh, you need more information uh, we have in Philly, Boston, or Baltimore. So uh, March 2nd. So it's coming up quickly. Uh, schedule it. And it, it's a nice uh, throwback to the double feature of yesteryear. Get to see Lolita, my love, and Peter and Josh. <clears throat> So, Michael, you got over to the uh, over to Iridium to see uh, our favorite Marilyn May. So, tell us how is Marilyn these days? She's great. We were joking uh, before we started recording that um, I've seen her in lots of places. I think at this point, she's really played every major 
cabaret and concert room in Manhattan and <laughs> and uh, other places. Um, and the only place I haven't seen her, I think, is Dizzy's Jazz Club up at the Time Water Center, which I'm told is a is a wonderful venue. So I'd love to get to see her there at some point. Uh, but this was my first time seeing her at Iridium, which is one of the most centrally located of all the rooms uh, next door to the Winter Garden Theater. Uh or actually maybe almost below it. Um, <laughs> uh, well, both, actually. It's it's directly below uh, Ellen Stardust Diner, which is next door to the Winter Garden. And uh, Iridium is a space that um, used to be uh, it's only fairly recently that it became Iridium, uh, which used to be somewhere else. Uh, I saw uh, before it was that space was Iridium. I saw Forbidden Broadway uh, in this space, this uh, this basement space. Um, uh, it was it, which was there briefly, not very long, but it was there. And uh, but now it's Iridium, and it's a very nice, uh, nicely appointed, uh, old style feel to it. Uh, the room itself. So I hadn't been there in a while, but it was great to be back. And Marilyn is in rare, rare form. Um, this was a, a, a to celebrate Valentine's. Excuse me, Valentine's Day. I did not go on the day I went the night after Friday the fifteenth. And uh but she but the repertoire was definitely reflective of Valentine's Day, including my funny Valentine. Uh she's not Marilyn's not one of those people who avoids that song on Valentine's Day. <laughs> uh she absolutely sang it and it was great to hear her sing it. Um she there was at least one other Rogers and Hart song in the program, My Romance, um, which she did a beautiful job with. And you know, I, I think the Rogers and Hart songs are absolutely perfect for uh well, you know, in general, but also for Valentine's Day because they give a very realistic picture of love. They're not sappy in any way. Uh, My Funny Valentine, famously, uh, the singer talks about actually um, the flaws of the person she's in love with. Is your figure less than Greek? Is your mouth a little weak? Uh, Etc. And then My Romance uh, is a it's a very beautiful, lovely, positive song, but it, it, it enumerates what's not necessary for uh, this love affair, this romance that these two people are having, no month of May, no twinkling stars, etc. Uh, and just in, in saying what we don't need and what we don't have, uh, that's a, you know, a really brilliant thing that Larry Hart did. Because, of course, when lyrics like that get wedded to the gorgeous music of Richard Rogers, you get um, just very unique uh sometimes bittersweet, uh, but always very realistic love songs. Uh, and so that's, I think, why Rogers and Hart really endure. Um, we, we talked recently uh, that uh, Santino Fontana uh, put together a, a Rogers and Hart evening for the Lyrics and Lyricists series at the 92nd Street Y. And uh, he talked about that in the show, uh, in his his narration for the show, his script that he wrote for that show, why they are so lasting. Uh, and it's 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 so true that some some writers are just more. I, I, I don't know. They, they just seem more modern to us than others for various reasons. Anyway, Marilyn did a great program. She was in great voice. Uh, some of her other songs included. Uh, what are you doing the rest of your life um, with music by the recently deceased Michel Legrand and lyrics by the Bergmans? Um, some of the show songs that Marilyn did were It's Today from MAME. And she did a My Fair Lady medley, uh, which was great. And she joked about how, uh, uh, you know, I do these songs, uh, you know, and, and I recorded them back when they were new, but I don't do them the way they were written <laughs> because she they're, they're definitely pop, poppy, jazzy renditions of the My Fair Lady songs which gives them a you know of course a whole different spin and makes them seem uh even even you know even fresher than uh 
than if we hear we hear them done the way that we've heard them a million times on the original Broadway cast recording. Uh, Golden Rainbow was another show song that Marilyn sang, and she did a rainbow medley and then a few other rainbow songs. She did Look to the Rainbow from Finian's Rainbow and Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz, which, of course, um, uh, the through line there is the same lyricist, E.Y. Harburg. Uh, so that was th- that was nice. And uh, she did The Rainbow Connection uh, that Muppets song. Uh, oh, and she did something that was really special to me. She sang a song called Corcovado, Quiet Nights with Quiet Stars. And that was very special to me because it's on one of Marilyn's first albums that she made back in the sixties. Um, uh, and so to hear her sing that, and, and it's, I, I guess it's not the same key, but it's not a lot lower. And it, she basically sounds pretty much the same as she did in the mid, in the mid sixties. Um, so that is, uh, is incredible because she is now 90 and it's, uh, uh, just a treasure to still have her with us. And I will continue to go see her for as long as she's around. And maybe, um, the next time I'll, I'll go to Dizzy's and, and check off that place. <laughs> okay. So that's Marilyn May at the, at, uh, every, excuse me, at Iridium. <laughs> yes. Iridium. Iridium. Okay, so um... let me add uh, something here Mm. um, and give a plug to a very good show. Uh, Rogers and Hart, you know, the fact is that a current show, a very good show called The Other Josh Cohen, actually mentions Rogers and Hart in this ad campaign. You may be seeing taxis around town uh, saying uh, it's a mixture of Seinfeld and Rogers and Hart. And it's very interesting to me that after all these years, Rogers and Hart is still perceived at least by an ad agency, to have some merit and to be a recognizable name that would sell a show. I haven't seen that. Do you know, is that, uh, I imagine that's a quote from a review? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Do you, did you uh, happen to know whose review? I don't remember. That I can't say. But, but that uh, is so, yes, that is so interesting. That, that uh, Would you agree that there's a Rogers and Hart uh, tone or aspect to, uh, to the other Josh Cohen? I can't say I noticed it, but I would have, whatever the... <laughs> Whatever the other Josh Cohen is, I like very much. Yes, we know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the quote is, it's Seinfeld meets Rogers and Hart, and it was uh, who it would just attribute it to Backstage. So whoever reviewed it for Backstage, I'm not, I'm unsure of who that was. Ah, thanks. Uh, but the other Josh Cohen uh, seems to be doing bang-up business uh, o- over um, at the West Side Theater, is it? I think mm-hmm. it's yes, the was it, yeah. I wasn't sure. Was it extended to an open run or just extended for some time? Uh, I always at, thought it was an open run. I'm looking uh, at I could their be website, wrong. and they don't seem to have an end date. Uh, oh, okay. Um, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the other Josh Cohn uh, doing business over at the West Side Theater. And um, I've seen, uh, uh, anecdotally, I've seen that it has been sold out a lot. So, oh, good. Yeah. That's great. I, I really enjoyed it over at Paper Mill, and I've been meaning to get down and uh, and see it at the West Side. I have to schedule that and do that because it's such a fun musical. I got a chance to finally catch up with To Kill a Mockingbird uh, over at the Schubert Theater. And I, uh, I, I'm afraid of overstating this. I'm afraid of overstating this, but I think it's the best show ever. Uh, ever. I'm on your side. <laughs> and, I, I, I was really blown away with it, and oh my goodness, I, I do not want to be um, one of these people that, who has to choose between mm-hmm. The Ferryman and Mockingbird uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all the other great, great plays that are happening this season, and Celia Keenan-Bolger, oh, I wish we could just, we could just mm-hmm. clone her. She's so <laughs> wonderful. She's just incredibly wonderful. Um, I, uh, I've i been waiting. I sent an email off to the press rep to see if I can get a, uh, a press script to to this because uh, I, I, I'm trying to – yeah. yeah, I'm trying to really see what the differences are between um, the, previ- the, the movie and the, and, and the previous book and, and this Broadway play because it seems like it's got – Tons of uh, Aaron Sorkin fingerprints all over it, 
Yes. And, uh, and I, you know, I'm a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin and, and know his television shows uh, inside now, you know, the mm-hmm. West Wing and Studio 60, Sports Night. Um, and it seemed like there were a lot of uh, phrases and devices that he's used throughout these television shows that were used in Mockingbird. And I wondered for a second, uh, uh, you know, did... Did Aaron Sorkin pick these up from Harper Lee, or did they, or did he add these into To Kill a Mockingbird? And I, I can't really tell that. Um, so many, uh, so many different things that I had caught uh, throughout the performance. The Mockingbird runs. Uh, my performance ran about two forty, two forty-five, and I didn't notice a minute of it dragging. Uh, it just clipped along and was very surprising. And um, it's a lot of. Um, a lot of buzz around it still. I, uh, the Clintons were there the other night. Mm. Um, we have a, a lot of uh, A-list celebrities who are still going to see this, even though it's been open for months. And it seems to be not letting up in that uh, in the beautiful Schubert Theater. Um, my only other thought about it was, was that in watching it, I thought to myself that the people who need to see this will never see mm, this. I know. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. Mm. Yeah. But James, uh, you will have a treat in the store. You'll admire it even more. If you do read that book and see that movie, you'll see what Aaron Sorkin really did. Uh, as you say, you can infer because you know his work so well. Nevertheless, I bet you'll be even more impressed if you do those other two things. Well, I was going to say uh, this would be a, a, a huge job. I don't know if Peter uh, would conceive of taking it on, but it would be interesting if someone did an exhaustive uh, comparison of the book and the movie and the Aaron Sorkin script. Uh, and since this uh, is such a high profile project and has gotten so much publicity and is so successful, Maybe someone will do that. Uh, that would be very, very interesting, I think. Well, I do believe that uh, of all the reviews I've ever written, uh, the To Kill a Mockingbird review is the longest I've ever written, um, 1,800 words, and it's on oh, Broadway, wow. broadwayselect.com. You can find it there. And while I won't say it's exhaustive, um, I did get a little tired because <laughs> there was so much to say. So, uh, so there are a lot of comparisons as to why this works in a way that is so different from the movie and the book. So mm-hmm. I do get specific in a lot of instances. I won't say that I've covered them all, but really 1,800 words is plenty enough. Mm. So um, To Kill a Mockingbird, um, while it is a hard ticket to get, they do have Rush and they do have a cancellation line. And, uh, and It is so, a huge theater. Yeah, it is a huge theater and it seems as though that uh, that they are you know trying to accommodate as many people as possible. So don't give up on it if if um if you've struck out trying to get there to see it certainly uh certainly you know you're not going to have the well maybe you will i think mm-hmm. would it be harder to get into to kill a mockingbird than it was to get into bruce springsteen but i, I think <laughs> it would be easier to get into mockingbird than springsteen and certainly a little cheaper, cheaper. <laughs> a little cheaper <laughs> <Right>. yeah <laughs> All right, so that uh, wraps it up for the morning. Uh, before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can find This Week on Broadway. Con- uh Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. And I'll dig up Peter's uh, Broadway Select review of To Kill a Mockingbird and put it in the show notes as well. All right, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, the question was, what do these Tony-winning songwriters have in common? Lionel Bart, Cherry Bach, Marvin Hamlish, Sheldon Harnick, Jerry Herman, Edward Kleban, and Maury Yeston. Well, uh, t- Tony Janicki uh, pointed out that all of them were Jewish. Well, yes, that's true. <laughs> he also pointed out that uh, all of them wrote at least one musical with a single name. Lionel Bart Oliver, 
Balkan Harnick, Fiorello, Marvin Hamlish, Smile, Jerry Herman, Mame, uh, Ed Kleban, Gallery, a show that didn't get produced, by the way, but that's another story, and Mari Estin, Nine. And there are others, too, of course, but uh, and he brought those up, but I'll uh, limit it to that for this discussion. And that's true, too, but that wasn't what I was after. Not that those aren't good answers. Uh, he would get credit for answering the question correctly, but eventually he got what I was after, just for the record, and that was that all beat out Stephen Sondheim's music and all lyrics for the Tony for Best Score, because Lionel Bart wrote Oliver, Barkin Harnick Fiddler, Hamlish and Kleban Chorus Line, Jerry Herman Lacage, and Murray Eston Nine. So uh, Tony Janicki was first, followed by Ingrid Gammerman, Brigadude, Donald Tessioni, and Fred Abramowitz. So this one. During the 1960s, S&H green stamps, which people collected and redeemed for prizes, were very big. The company had a rewards catalog that was the largest publication in the United States. And it literally issued three times as many stamps as the post office. So popular were S&H Green Stamps, the two musicals in the 60s had songs that mentioned Green Stamps. While their composers and lyricists saw these two specific musicals, not win Tony's best musical, both and one's a team and one's an individual, now have Tony-winning musicals to their credit, two of them, in fact. So, what are the shows and songs that mention the Green Stamps? Who were the composers and lyricists for them? And what were their Tony-winning musicals? Okay, if you know the answer to this, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye.